Second uh, Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one, beginning in verse two, Peter writes to the church and says, "Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness." Through the knowledge of him. Second time he's mentioned knowledge about the word. Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Now notice verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now notice that last phrase. Having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Do you realize that he's saying that the whole, uh, everything about the original sin, everything about Adam and Eve's sin in, uh, in the beginning when they were in the garden was because of lust coming to fruition. Now, we think of the word lust most of the times in a, spirit, in a sexual context, and, and certainly that's uh, a part of the meaning of the word, but uh, the word lust just means uh, inordinate desire, wanting something too much. Now, I want you to um, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at the story of the fall, beginning in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the fields which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now notice verse 6. And when the woman saw, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave it also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. There's, um, uh, you don't have to turn there. Let me, I'm going to go to another couple of scriptures and show you real quickly something here that I'd like you to see. In James chapter 1, about... Uh, well, verse 13, he said, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he, any, with, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. I also want to read to you from 1 John chapter 2. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, the reason I wanted to read some of those scriptures to you is because I think it's important for us to recognize how the devil operates. And the way he operated in the beginning with the original sin was he got Eve to look at something that she wasn't used to looking at. When he first asked her, has God commanded you not to eat of, or has God said you could eat of all the trees of the garden? She answers and says, all, all but one, because in the day that we eat thereof, we'll die. 
And that's what God said. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. There's a play on words there from the Hebrew. It says, dying you shall die. That really means that spiritual death, once it begins, has a continuing effect, a progressive effect upon mankind. And that certainly has proven out to be true. But it's telling us that Eve really didn't pay too much attention to the tree until the devil drew her attention to it. Because when it says, and when she saw that the fruit was good to eat and that it was a tree to be desired, when she saw, she wasn't looking at it as a part of her ordinary life. It wasn't like she went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil every morning and looked at the tree and stared at it intently and said, why doesn't God want us to eat this thing? As long as she was acting on what God had given her to do, she wasn't looking at the tree. But notice what the devil did. The devil brought her attention to it and got her to focus on the tree. He didn't focus on himself. He didn't focus on uh, the consequence much. He said, well, God lied to you when he said you're going to die. And then he said, God knows that when you eat thereof, you'll be like God's knowing good and evil. Now, I'm not sure what the temptation is there for her. Because surely she and Adam have been on the earth long enough to know that they're the greatest of anything God's created. She has to know that they're greater than the angels. She has to know that, she, that they, as representatives of mankind, are greater than anything and everything that God made. What's she trying to attain? What's wrong with paradise that might make her even consider that there's something better? Now, of course, the devil is trying to trap her. He's trying to trick her into thinking the wrong thing, and he was successful. But notice the way he, he gained his success. Notice the way he gained victory over her. If he couldn't get her to look at the tree, then he couldn't get her to disobey God and eat of the tree. Folks, there's a lot that the Bible says about what you look at. There's a whole lot that, of what the, uh, in the Bible about what we're supposed to look at. Look with me to, to uh, Proverbs chapter 4. Beginning in verse 20, it says, My son, attend unto my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Notice that part of finding the word part of coming to the realization of what God has done for us as explained and told to us in his word. A lot of that has to do with what you look at. A lot of that has to do with what you focus your attention on. And over and over and over again, we see the devil trying to trip us up by getting us to, or at least attempting to get us to look at the wrong thing. He, know if you, he knows if you can't, he can't get you to look at the wrong thing, then he has very, very little chance of making you stumble. The Bible says in several places, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 being one of them, it says, but for we walk by faith and not by sight. Notice the contrast that the Holy Ghost puts between the things that we see and the things we can't see. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 talks about in the middle of affliction it tells us to look at 
Actually, it says from the preceding verse, it tells us about how the, the light affliction that we're enduring here for a time will weigh out for us a greater uh, means or measure of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but it's the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal or temporary or subject to change. That's what that word means. The things that are seen are subject to change. Well, how are they subject to change? Well, some things change on their own and other things we change by our words according to the scriptures through our faith. So it says while we look at, here's how to make the the light affliction that we're in, uh, in the middle of now, experiencing now, the way to make it a work of glory in us is to look at the things that are not seen. Walk by faith, in other words, and not by sight. For the things which are seen are temporal, subject to change, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Paul wrote to the church and said, set your eyes on things that are above and not on things of the earth. What's he talking about? He's talking about walking according to the things that we can't see. Now, how do we have information about what we can't see? How do you walk according to the things that you can't see? Well, there's only one source of information that tells us about the things that we can't see, and that's the Word of God. And that's why Proverbs tells us, let not the Word depart from your eyes. And that same principle is given to us over and over and over again. You remember Joshua, when Joshua takes over for Moses as the leader of the children of Israel. God tells him the keys to success. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Meditating must have something to do with what you say. The words of your mouth. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. The key to success is to know what the word says. Look at the promise of God in other words. And keep speaking that over and over and over again. Now, folks, I trust you know the the story, the parable of the sower sowing the word in Mark chapter 4 well enough that we don't have to turn there. But So let me talk about it a little bit. If you want to turn to it, you can. But Jesus tells a parable that he says is the key to all other parables. It's the way to understand how the whole of the kingdom of God works. And you remember the story, the sower sows the word. Some fell on, uh, by the wayside where the devil immediately took it away from them, stole it from them. Some fell on stony ground. Some fell on thorny ground. And some fell on, upon good ground. Now, you remember the difference between the good ground and the stony ground and the, uh, uh, the thorny ground? The difference is the good ground kept watering it by saying the word. See, we water the word the same way that we plant it. Paul talked about himself and, and Apollos. He said, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Well, what does that mean? That means that Paul originally preached the word of truth to them. But then Apollos came back at another time, at a later time, and he taught the same things that Paul had taught and, and proclaimed, brought to him firsthand. So the teaching of the word is not only for planting, it's also for watering. And the more you speak the word, because God told Joshua that was the key to success, it was the foundation for success, the more you speak the word, the greater results you're going to get. But do you remember between the stony ground and the the thorny ground why they didn't keep up with the word? 
It says the, the stony ground didn't have much depth of earth, literally not much moisture. And so when affliction and persecution arose for the word's sake, immediately those folks were offended. And the word of God, the most powerful thing in the universe, the origin of the universe, the way God created everything that we uh, can ever see or feel, everything about this physical realm was created by the word of God. So the word of God with that much power still didn't produce for the stony ground people because they let affliction and persecution bring them to offense. Now, what should they do? Or, well, first of all, what did they do? What does it mean where they were offended? It means they quit speaking the word. They quit claiming the promises of God. They quit saying the word of God that they had been given. And so it didn't produce any results. Now, do you remember also, we'll come back to uh, the parable. But do you remember also in Isaiah 55, where God said, so shall my word be. They goeth forth out of my mouth. I think that's verse 11. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I sent it to do and accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. In other words, it's saying the word of God never returns to God void of power, empty. But how does it return to God to begin with? We know how it comes to us. It comes to us through those words that are written in this wonderful book, called the Bible and we find from that book things that we are supposed to look at and keep our gaze and attention focused on but when people get distracted or in this case when affliction, trouble, test trials and adversities and persecution, people saying things against us if we let that stop us from saying, speaking the word of God and watering that which we planted in our hearts then it doesn't produce any results. So when God said, my word shall not return unto me void, he's not saying the word of God will work in every situation no matter what the people that hear it do. He's saying it can't be robbed or stripped of power from the people that keep watering the word, keep speaking the word of God into their lives. The thorny ground in Mark chapter 4, it says that these people began by taking care of the word, they planted it, they watered it, they're doing everything right. But then there were three things that arose that distracted them and caused them to stop watering the word. You remember what, do you remember what those three things are? The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things. They choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust for other things. Now, here's that word lust again. It's telling us that the devil will try to distract us from the truth by getting us to look at something and giving inordinate attention to it by creating or influencing us to create a desire for something more than the word or the results that the word will produce. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. If Satan couldn't have gotten her to look at the tree, if he couldn't have gotten her, if he failed to get her to consider the tree and consider her actions and consider what he told her would take place, 
becoming like God. Like I said, and I've said this a lot of times, I guess, I'm not sure what they were after. The Bible says she was deceived, but the man wasn't. But I'm not sure what she was trying to attain, trying to take hold of. She was already an exact duplicate of God. When the Bible says in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. That literally means an exact copy. Well, didn't she know that? I don't know. Some of it doesn't make sense to me. But the Bible is helpful by showing us how it worked. He got her to looking at the wrong thing. He got her to looking at the wrong thing. And the more she looked at the wrong thing, the more her will was broken down to do that which God had commanded them not to do. What we look at is so important, folks. It is so important. Now, the Bible gives us information. It says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. I'm going to give you four examples where the Bible tells us, gives us hands-on experience, eyewitness testimony as to the way the devil works and the way that God counteracts his devices. First of all, I want you to look with me in Numbers chapter 21. We'll start in verse... uh, well, let's start in verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor. This is the uh, children of Israel when Moses is leading them in the wilderness. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass or to encircle or to go around the land of Edom, which was a big, uh, big place. They're having to go way out of the way, the Bible's telling us, to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. He's talking about the manna that showed up every morning. And the Lord sent fiery serpents. Now this is a permissive tense verb rather than the causative. The Bible tells us that they went through the wilderness where there were fiery serpents. So what that means is the land that they went through, the wilderness that they went through, these fiery serpents or poisonous snakes were, uh, were there all the time. But it was only when they murmured against Moses and sinned against God that the serpents had any effect on the people whatsoever. But it says in King James, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Now, please notice that they recognize the result or the the cause for the things that are taking place. They started off by saying, Moses, this is all your fault. And this is God's fault for bringing us out in the wilderness to die. But then when the snakes came up and started binding the people, and a lot of them died, there was a great number of them that died through these poisonous snake bites. Now they recognize that it was their doing, not God's. That God's been protecting them all this time. And they're the ones that changed the situation. So they came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent. That just means a, a brass um, mold or model of a serpent to put on the pole. The American Medical Association still uses that sign and that symbol for their organization. So the Lord said, Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, folks, this sounds very simple. It sounds like God just says whoever looks at this serpent on the pole will be healed of the, the results of the snake bite and, and won't be troubled anymore by the snakes. But there's a couple of things that we need to identify. First of all, the word beheld and the word uh, looketh are both words that identify with the attention or the focus that they placed on this. In other words, he's not saying a casual glance will do. Now, what's the importance of looking at the pole? What's the importance of continuing? Gazing intently is really what the word look means. It means to gaze intently upon. Why is it so important that they gaze intently upon the pole, the serpent of brass on the pole? Because the snakes are still around their feet. And in this plague where all these snakes are coming through the camp, you've got to consider the attitude of the people knowing that there are snakes anywhere and everywhere. Now, snakes are one of my things. I, I can't stand snakes. So I imagine myself in this situation in the camp. Where do you go? They live in tents. You can't keep a snake out of a tent. So what do you do? Do you go to open spaces? Well, what if those open spaces have got snakes all around them? And folks, I don't get the idea or the picture out of this you uh, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I don't get the picture out of this. That there was a couple of snakes scattered around in the four corners of the, uh, of the, the camp. If this is serious enough for the people to say, Hey, we've sinned. We've messed up. We need to fix this. There's gotta be a multitude of snakes. So the key, and this has great spiritual application. The key to being healed was to keep your eyes off of the circumstances at your feet and gaze intently or look upon the pole, the serpent of brass that's on the top of the pole. And the Bible says the people that did that were healed. Now, Jesus identifies with this in John chapter 3. I think it's verse 17. It's right after he, uh, he spoke the great scripture that everybody loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have, should have everlasting life. Then Jesus goes on to say, as Moses lifted the serpent of brass on the pole up before the people, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, talking about his crucifixion on the cross. So Jesus identifies himself. This is a type. The serpent of brass on the pole is a type of Jesus in the Old Testament, part of what he fulfilled. And certainly it has to do with him being the, uh, the sacrifice for mankind. But it also has a lot to do concerning the representation of Jesus being made sin. See, if it was us, we would think if this was something that Jesus was, uh, was a type of Jesus that Jesus would fulfill, we'd put a brass, serpent, I mean, a, a, a brass lamb on the pole perhaps. But it's indicative of Jesus being made sin when he died for us. So the important thing for the people 
And whether they recognized it when Moses first told them or they saw how it was, had to work as they went along and experienced it, I don't know. But they had to be willing to look away from the circumstances. In other words, look at the unseen rather than the seen. And we see from the results of this situation, this occurrence, we see that the things around their feet were able to be changed by them looking at the representation or that which illustrated Jesus. Again, the Bible is telling us to keep our eyes on what we can't see or to keep our eyes on the promise of God. Let me show you another one. Another one is probably the one that you're most familiar with. In Romans chapter 4, talking about Abraham, it says, Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Then the American Standard Version says this, goes on to say this in verse 20, But looking unto the promises of God, he staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that God was able to do what he had promised. So what brought Abraham victory when he and Sarah were too old, physically too old to have children, yet the promise was they would have a child in a year? What was Abraham's keys to success? He kept his eyes off the circumstances. He didn't look or consider the condition of his body and Sarah's body to be the defining word or the last word on the subject. He kept his eyes on the promise of God. The way he was able to not waver or stagger through unbelief was what he looked at. He kept his eyes on the promise. And that changed the circumstances of his flesh and changed the circumstances of Sarah's flesh. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith. Faith is believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So walking by faith is walking by the word. Walking with your attention upon the word and the promises of God and not the circumstances around you. Let me give you another example. The third of the four is in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus just fed the 5,000 and he sends the disciples away ahead of him across the Sea of Galilee to get to the other side. But in the middle of the night, there was a storm. I'll start with verse 24, Matthew 14, 24. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea and tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is the Spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be you... Bid me to come unto thee on the water. And when he said, Come, and he said, Come, and when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Verse 30, But when he saw, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus said little faith can walk on the water. Now this didn't turn out the way Jesus intended for it to and it didn't turn out the way that Peter intended for it to do. 
But remember when we started here, they're not able to move the ship because of the wind and the waves. They're stalled out. They're taking water into the ship. There was a storm that had been going on for some time. And when Jesus comes to them, and Peter says, sees that it's him and challenges Jesus to challenge him by telling him to come to him. And Jesus says, come. There's nothing that Jesus did other than his work on the cross that he ever indicated in any way whatsoever that the disciples couldn't do it too. That's true for us as well. There was never anything that Jesus did that he said, now guys, you can't do this. This is just for me, the son of God. The closest he came was when James and John's mother went to ask if her sons could sit one on the right hand and one on the left. Then Jesus says, it's not mine to give. Those places are not mine to give. But are they able to drink of the cup that I drink? In other words, he's saying, the only way I'm going to get to the place that God wants me to be, the only way I'm going to fulfill God's original plan for the redemption of mankind is to be the, the substitute for all men. Well, certainly they couldn't do that. They wouldn't have made a worthy sacrifice for any of us. But everything else other than going to the cross and the things surrounding the cross, Jesus said, everything I did, you'll do too. The works that I do, you'll do also. And greater works than these shall you do. Now, I have no idea what the greater works are. I don't think you can get any greater works in quality than what Jesus did. Maybe he means greater in number because there's more of us than just him. If that's not what he means, I don't have a clue. But back to Peter. The wind was boisterous. The waves were high. The storm was ongoing before he ever heard Jesus or saw him walking on the water or got out of the ship to go to it. So what caused him to look at the waves? It says when he saw the wind boisterous. When he saw the wind boisterous, he's already walking on the water. Why should the wind affect anything that he's already doing? It didn't hinder him from walking out of the water when he got out of the ship. Folks, something, something caused Peter to look at the wind and the waves and to be afraid. The Bible doesn't even tell us they were afraid in the ship. But something Influenced Peter to look at the waves and look at the wind, see the wind boisterous. And he began to sink. Now, folks, I believe with all my heart, you judge this for yourself. There's more to it than just what Peter looked at. Because the word that Jesus gave to him was come. Jesus didn't say, come stand out here with me. He said, come. Because Peter said, if it's you, tell me to come to you. So the intent is for Peter to leave the ship and walk to where Jesus is. But somewhere along the way, he wasn't very far from Jesus apparently because Jesus was close enough to catch him when he started to sink. But somewhere along the way, the circumstances became the focus of his attention rather than Jesus and what Jesus told him. The only way that he could begin to sink is if he stopped coming. And that's exactly what he did. So when he looked at the circumstances, when he gave undue attention, unnecessary attention to the circumstances, 
That's when he began to sink. And folks, that's where all of us begin to sink. When we start looking at the circumstances around us, rather than what the Word of God says, that's when everybody sinks. Last one I want to show you, the fourth one I want to show you is Jonah. I really like this guy. Part of the reason I like this guy is because he messed up just like we do. But he knew God well enough to know that his own sin, his own mistakes wouldn't keep him out of the things of God. So you remember the story of Jonah. God tells him to go to Assyria, Nineveh, which was the the, uh, capital city of Assyria, because he wants to bring them revival. God wants to bring the people of Assyria revival. God said if they don't repent within 30 days, they'll die. Well, that's exactly what Jonah wanted. So he starts running in the, different, in the opposite direction. He winds up getting on a ship going the, the opposite way. And great storms come up and everybody's trying to sacrifice to their God to appease any and every God that they can so that they can sail safely. Finally, they find out it's Jonah. Jonah tells them, yeah, this is God. The only way you can be saved is throw me overboard. Well, they didn't even want to do that to begin with because they thought that might make God mad. But eventually they threw him overboard and he was swallowed by the fish. Now in the fish, Jonah seems to do some soul searching. And it's a sad thing that too many people wait to get in the belly of the fish before they take stock of what's going on in their lives. May I recommend to you don't wait till you get in the belly of the fish? It was nasty in there. So Jonah starts taking stock of himself. And he says, I'll start in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. It says, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came unto thee and into thine holy temple. Now, folks, this has meaning that we might not rec- uh, just recognize right off the bat. The temple was the place where God had promised deliverance. You remember the, uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 when Jehoshaphat is king of Judah and the five enemy kings come out against them. They pray. They set themselves to fast and to pray and seek direction from God. And a part of uh, Jehoshaphat's prayer is about the temple. He said, Lord, didn't you say that if we came before you and served you, that when we needed help, you'd help us and deliver us? Well, that was the promise that God had made to all of Israel. And so when Jonah makes reference to lifting his eyes to the temple, he's talking about deliverance. When my soul fainted, in other words, when I hit rock bottom, and folks, rock bottom was the middle of uh, the belly of the fish. So Jonah's basically saying, when I hit rock bottom, then I remembered the Lord and I remembered his promise. I remembered that he said that he would, because we serve him, he said that he would deliver us. So he said, when my soul fainted, I remembered the Lord. And I lift up my eyes, or lift up my prayer, into thine holy temple. And notice what he concludes. He concludes because he remembers the promise of God, the promise of deliverance. He concludes in verse 8, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Now what is he calling a lying vanity? The belly of the fish. Now folks, he was really in the belly of the fish. He's not denying where he is. 
A lot of people try to deny what's going on in their bodies or in their lives and think that's faith. It's not. Faith doesn't deny the circumstances. Faith just uses the word of God to change them. I think that Jonah's example, if he followed the way that a lot of Christians operate, when they think they're in faith, Jonah would have said, I'm not in the belly of the fish. I'm not in the belly of the fish. I'm not in the belly of the fish. Well, you can confess that forever and you'd still be in the belly of the fish. Jonah's plan is to get out, not to uh, deny where he is. And notice that he recognizes what he has to do. He recognizes and gives us a principle of what everybody has to do to obtain deliverance from the Lord. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. In other words, he's saying you've got a choice on what you're going to look at. You can look at, that, look at the circumstances, same choice Abraham had when he was 100 and Sarah was 90. Their bodies didn't function in a reproductive manner anymore. So what's he going to look at? Is he going to look at how dead his body is? Is he going to look at how dead Sarah's body is? Are they going to look at how unable, physically unable they are to bring this out or bring this off? Are they going to look at the promise of God? That's the same choice we all have. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Now think about what he's saying. He's saying anybody that accepts the circumstance and focuses on the circumstance and looks at the snake at their feet instead of God's means of deliverance forfeit their own mercy. He's telling us that the mercy of God is available to deliver us, every one of us, any one of us, from any circumstance in any situation. And the way he tells us to obtain God's help for deliverance from any and every situation is to observe what God said. Keep your eyes on the word of God. Keep your eyes on the promise of God rather than the circumstances. Let me close this up in Hebrews chapter 12. The 11th chapter of Hebrews tells us about the heroes of faith, the hall of fame of faith people. Verse 12 tells us why uh, Paul, by the Holy Ghost, if, assuming Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews, tells us why the Holy Ghost reminded us of all those that went on before us and their exploits in faith. Verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, how are we supposed to run the race? He says, another translation says it this way, with the heroes of faith in the grandstands, we should run our race. And that's the picture that he's trying to paint here. That's the whole reason for the heroes of faith. If they did it, you can do it too. There are examples. And we're encompassed about or encircled with such a great cloud of witnesses. In other words, they're pulling for us and God's pulling for us too. God's on our side, not against us. So let's run with patience the race that's set before us. Take away and strip away all the things that hold us back. Some things are sins and other things are just weights. The devil's perfectly happy with you if he can attach weights to you. Those are distractions. Those are things that will influence you and try to draw your attention away from the things that God has given you to do. But how are we going to run with patience the race that is set before us? Verse 2. 
looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What enables us to run with patience? Remember, faith and patience inherits the promises. Remember, James said in chapter 1, first f- a couple of verses of the book, the letter that he wrote to the church, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, test trials and afflictions, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect in entire wanting nothing. Faith and patience will bring you out of any situation Faith and patience will bring you into the victory that God has provided to us through the finished work of Jesus. So how are we to run with patience this race that's set before us? By keeping our eyes on the Word. Jesus is the Word made flesh. So when you're looking under the author and the finisher of our faith, Jesus himself, you're looking at the Word. How did he author our faith? Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing. He gives us the Word of God that produces faith. Then he provides for us patience as we keep our eyes on him so that we end up in total and complete victory. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Folks, what we look at is everything. The devil wants to draw you away, not by just telling you or trying to influence you, throwing you in the deep end of the pool, so to speak. If he can get you looking at the wrong things, if he can get you looking away from the word. And folks, if you're standing on the word for, uh, to overcome some situation, whether it's sickness or disease or whether it's financial trouble or whatever it is, if you're looking away, if the devil can get you to look away from the promise that you're standing on, then he can probably lead you into to defeat. That's what he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24. Faithful is he who calleth thee. He will also bring it to pass. Not one part of the word can ever fail. It's impossible for the word to fail. If we don't fail the word. Then it will never fail. Let's pray. Father we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word produces faith in our hearts. We thank you Father that you watch over your word to perform it. We choose, Father, to let the word not depart from before our eyes. We choose to look unto your promise and your ways. We choose to look at that which you have told us and not the circumstances around us, not the circumstances of our our lives, the snakes at our feet, perhaps. We choose not to look at the condition of our bodies. We choose to look only at your word. Thank you, Father, that your word is true and that our words come to pass. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.